Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange... The bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. We have to book flights. Yeah, we do. We've got uh, a lot of traveling to do the first of the year. Looking forward to it. It's always fun. I enjoy it. We were uh, talking with some friends last night over some delicious barbecue tofu sandwiches. Thank you very much, Moe's. And um, they were talking about like insane hotel bills that they had racked up. Oh, yeah. And (laughs) I very much enjoyed that story uh, that involved two days in Vegas that worked out to about (laughs) $52,000. Yeah. Now, that wasn't just... Our friends that racked that up, it was like some sort of a corporate celebration. Yeah, there were like six people. Yeah, and uh, apparently they didn't put any limits on the spending. (laughs) And they did a hell of a lot more than empty the... uh, the honor bar. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, we've had that uh, happen one time. There was a, a misunderstanding where we ended up having an extraordinarily high hotel bill. Oh, was that in New York? Yeah, at the W. Yeah, we stayed at the W. In That's New right. New York City. And uh, that was <laughs> hilarious because the day that we're getting ready to leave, you know, they slide the bill under your door. And I hate I, that moment, by the way. <laughs> I went and picked it up and I was like, Oh, no. <laughs> it was so high, but it was because... It's like um, $700. They or... had one of those uh, mini bars that was uh, like weight sensitive. So it charged you by how many items you took out of the mini bar. Mm-hmm. And so I had to go down to the front desk and be like, hello, th- hi, <laughs> yeah. thank you for the stay. It was nice. Please don't charge us this much. All the stuff is back in the mini bar. I just needed room for my juice. Yeah. <laughs> you emptied out the, the, the mini bar to put your juice and I think like a leftover uh, hoagie yeah. in, in the uh, honor bar to keep it cool and fresh. Sure. And that damn near cost us $700. <laughs> yep. So be careful. Let that be a lesson to you kids listening. Don't mess with the honor bar. Yeah. Just leave it. And bring a cooler. <laughs> You'd be much better off. I go first. I'm going to talk about the history of Edinburgh. I 
happened there? Scotland. Opal fruits. It's uh, it's full of dead bodies and human waste. Oh, okay. Well, the history of Edinburgh was full of dead bodies and human waste. Okay. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, the less desirable, not as romantic Edinburgh, Scotland. It dates all the way back to the Roman era, but uh, Edinburgh became a crowded modern city in the 18th and 19th century. But for centuries before that, it was pretty much just um, an open cesspit. Uh, <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah. Today, it's a beautiful city. It's rich in history and culture, but it uh, it's also a city today that's built on around, uh, well, hundreds of thousands of corpses. Did you know this? I did not know this. So what was it like to live in old Edinburgh during the day, say, like, say, the late Middle Ages, you know, before modern plumbing? Right. I don't know. <laughs> I was there in the 90s. They had so plumbing then. That was not that long ago, I guess. No. Well, let's take a quick look. Yes, please. Norlock. That's the uh, northern lock. Norlock. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. It was a scenic lake at the foot of Edinburgh Castle. This beautiful scenic lake. Well, it was it, it was beautiful as long as you didn't get too close because it was used as a dumping ground for human waste and dead bodies for 600 years. Oh, my goodness. It also contained waste from, well, all the slaughterhouses sure. in the city and every other form of animal waste imaginable. It seems interesting that uh, the bodies would also go in there. Like, yeah. Like that was their method of disposal is just. Well, huck it in the lake. That's not. It wasn't their their method of burial. Um, it was more for like uh, murder victims or criminals that had been executed. Oh, the or, the unwanted or poor people. Okay, you know, one it's, of those three categories. Got it. According to the Scotsman, Norlock was. <laughs> The, the northern lock. lock yes. Okay, yeah. Nor, nor lock. Sure. Lock was effectively, you know, a large cesspit and its stench was overpowering. I would imagine. They like to say, yeah, you know, we dumped all of our human waste and dead bodies and animal parts in the lake for 600 years. And we also used it as a drinking water supply. Why would that be something they'd want people to think was it's, true? It's a good story. Oh, no. They didn't get their drinking water from there. But all the rest of that's true. Ugh. It was, without question, a place of death. It was also a popular suicide spot. And the scene of, of, of numerous violent murders, because along the banks of the lock, um, it was frequently used as a place where brutal punishments were carried out. Because, again, that's where the poor people lived. Oh, I see. They lived in these huge tenement buildings mm -hmm. along the, uh, the waterfront of the lake. That area was used as, uh, well, because it was not well taken care of and it was next to the lake. That's also where they... Uh, where they carried out all sorts of brutal executions and punishments and things like that. Sure. I mean, if you're going to make a mess, do it next to the kitchen. Or the or the bathroom. Right. In this case. Executions in public dukings. Dukings were commonplace. Dukings? Dukings. Like a fight? No, no. Okay, because that's the I think only... it's like dunkings or it was how they killed witches. Oh. Yeah. Many large crowds would gather to witness these events. Uh, one of the more gruesome tales 
involved a Mr. Sinclair. Now, this was a legend that was passed on for centuries. Okay. A Mr. Sinclair and his two sisters were sentenced to death for incest in 1628. Oh, no. The story goes that uh, the accused were... They, were, they, they locked him in a chest, all three of them, alive. They drilled holes in it and then dumped it into Poop Lake. Oh, no. Yeah. That sounds terrible. It was thought that uh, that was more of a fairy tale or fictional story because there was never any hard proof of that. Just one of those stories that was passed on from generation to generation sure. until two centuries later in the spring of 1820, when workers were digging a drain during the creation of West Prince's Street Gardens, a large box containing the remains of three people uh, was discovered deeply embedded in the mud. Oh, no. What an awful way to go. That sounds terrible. Drowning I was just thinking poop. that if, you know, they're doing the, the murdering there anyway and people would gather to, to do it, it would be very effective to just huck people in there and then just give the crowd sticks to just poke, to em, poke them as they try em, to get out. Poke them down. Just yeah. give, them, give them a poke and then, you know, it, good fun for everyone. Sure. Yeah. A little pokey poke. It's audience participation. That's right. Which I don't like in theater, no. but in murders, sure. Um, it's estimated that more than 300 men and women were sentenced to be tried for wizardry and witchcraft. Oh, Jesus. Either in Norlock itself or around its banks. Now, here was, this was, this, this was what they did. If they tried, if they suspected you of being a witch or a warlock, they would tie you up and they would tie your thumbs to your toes and then they would drag you down the muddy slopes toward Poop Lake mm -hmm. and then throw you into the water. If you sank and perished, then you were free of evil spirits and you were innocent. Uh, if you, quote, defied all sense by floating, then they pulled you out and burned you. So either way, it was a losing proposition. Wow, that's terrible. It's, uh, I can't help but think of Holy Grail. A witch! It got better. So, the history of Norlock... Is not great. And even as far back as the early 18th century, many of the city's upper classes were calling for the lake to be dra uh, drained or filled in. Okay. By 1764, it was reported that the lock was in, quote, good measure drained at its eastern edge, due in part to new construction project, which uh, had been underway for a few years. Work began on the North Bridge to connect the new town with the old, and a dry valley was desired so that the construction of the bridge's piers would be easier to install. Sure. Progress to drain the water to the west was slow, and apparently marshland was reported there as recently as uh, 1817. But by the mid-19th century, all remnants of this lake had vanished for good. Well, I imagine that it would drain very slowly because it would be chunky. Yeah, and, full of poop and bodies. Right. More sludgy than watery. Prince's Street Gardens developed in stages from east to west between 1830 and 1876, now occupies the former Norlock Valley. I'm sure flowers grow very well there. <laughs> sure they do. 
I wouldn't eat any vegetables that had been planted there, though, regardless of how well they grow. I mean, what do you think fertilizer is, boo? Yeah. I love you, but... Yeah, but, you know, it's like the episode I did on on graveyards and, you know, sure, stuff grows really good in graveyards, Mm. but it's also full of all kinds of bacteria and microbes and bad things. Yeah, but... Mushrooms. (laughs) In old Edinburgh, people literally dumped their chamber pots on the street. Yeah. We're moving inland now from the lake a little bit. They would also toss dead animals outside the doors of their houses. Uh, Slaughtered animal parts would go out there. They just toss them outside. And of course, with that brought massive amounts of blood. Um, There were those who were supposed to clean the streets. That was their job. But it rarely happened. And when it did happen, it was more in the uh, affluent communities. Consequently, streets were covered with human feces, urine, food waste, blood, animal corpses. It was an open sewer in the streets. If you heard someone yell, Garde Lou, then you look up, heads up. Uh, The phrase comes from a French phrase meaning, watch out for the water. And it meant someone was was about to dump the contents of their chamber pot out the window onto the unsuspecting uh, pedestrians. Well, that's it's considerate to let them know. Sure. It's like yelling for during a uh, a round of golf. That's exactly what I thought when I read that. It's the same thing. (laughs) Gardelou! Being doused by human feces in urine was not an uncommon event. That sounds terrible. Some of those tenement buildings in the poorer parts of the city that I, were tell- I was telling you about, they were up to 14 stories high. Mm. That's a huge building for 1600. You know a story about you know what, what happened if you dropped a penny off the Empire State Building? The damage caused by a turd plummeting 14 stories and whacking an unwary passerby in the noggin. Especially if, you know, the person was constipated. I'm guessing that uh, it was, well, I don't want to guesstimate on the firmness of their poo, I suppose. (laughs) Never mind. Go ahead. It was said that when people tossed the contents of their chamber pots from 10 stories up or more, the backsplash was as high as the second story. Yeah. Things got so bad in the city that the Nastiness Act was enacted in 1749, the Nastiness Act. It's decree- it decreed that uh, waste could only be tossed between 7 p.m. and, and 7 a.m. Sure, yeah. Of course as long still- as it's dark, it's okay <laughs> that you're literally yeeting urine at your townsfolk. And still, I guess, you know, that's why modern etiquette protocol says that a man should walk on the outside of the sidewalk and the woman should walk on the inside and the reason dates back to times like this when if you were walking on the outside of the sidewalk you were a far bigger target for flying dew sure again very considerate i also i would imagine that um like if there was any sort of sidewalk like if the sidewalk was raised up from the street if there was a curb if you will Mm -hmm. um, a lady's dress might drag uh, and then hit that that curb where everything I'm guessing would kind of puddle and run off and <sighs> yeah. All good cities have a good nickname, you know, like the Big Apple in New York. Sure. Edinburgh has been called Old Reeky for centuries, <laughs> <laughs> and the reason is it's pretty obvious. 
It had a, uh, a certain odor. It was a combination of open cesspit and death is how it was described. Second, Edinburgh was a very smoky city because of all the coal fires and because the buildings in some areas were so high, the smoke just kind of stayed there. And uh, that added to the famous smell Sure. as well. In 1819, English poet Robert Southey declared, quote, well, may Edinburgh be called Old Reeky. The houses stand so one above the other that none of the smoke wastes itself upon the desert air before the inhabitants have derived all the advantages of its odor and must. You might smoke bacon by hanging it out of the window. But uh, that would add to the effluvia. <laughs> yes. Daniel Defoe, author of Robinson Crusoe, was shocked after visiting Edinburgh, writing, quote, I believe that in no city in the world so many people have so little room. Uh, the cramped space caused problems and, of course, managing the human waste but and, and the smoke, of course, but also major problems with burial of bodies. Now, you had asked this, mm -hmm. uh, were they throwing them in the lake? Not all the bodies, just the ones they didn't care about. Sure. Um, all the other bodies, they would just pile up outside the city. Greyfriars Kirkyard is where that is now, and, and it's, it's a graveyard, but it's on this beautiful mountain or large hill outside of the city. But inside that hill, about a half million bodies that are just piled up. Oh, it's like our uh, nearby landfill. It's very similar to that Trash Mountain, we call it yeah. here, here in Maine. Lovely Trash Mountain. Yeah. That's what they would do. They would just take the bodies out and they'd throw them in a big pile. And then over time, just it became this hill and grass and stuff grew on it. And now it's the beautiful Greyfriars Kirkyard. That's where we picnic. It does look like a beautiful grassy hill, but under the dirt, an enormous pile of corpses. Sometimes bones will pop up through the layer of, of soil because they haven't been buried very well. It's now thought to be the most haunted cemetery in the world. Oh, really? According to the Daily Beast, among many hauntings in the cemetery, uh, the one most famous is George Mackenzie, Bloody Mackenzie, the Mackenzie poltergeist. He's said to be one of the most aggressive and active paranormal figures around, uh, known during his lifetime as a ruthless persecutor of the Scottish Covenanters, a uh, Presbyterian movement in the 17th century. Mackenzie's spirit, according to legend, was released in 1999, right about the time Netflix came out. Oh, wow. With a homeless man. Uh, he was looking. He was staying up there, and he was looking for a place to rest. And he broke into the the uh, mausoleum, mm -hmm. and they say that that released the uh, the spirit of Bloody Mackenzie. Uh, it was a fate that was predicted by famed Scottish poet Robert Louis Stevenson, who referenced Mackenzie in his 1879 book Edinburgh Picturesque Notes, writing, "Quote." When a man's soul is certainly in hell, his body will scarce lie quiet in a tomb, however costly. Some time or other, the door must open, and the reprobate come forth in the abhorred garments of the grave. Oh, wow. In 1645, oh, that was the year the plague hit. Yeah, I bet that didn't do Edinburgh well. What they did was uh, when, when people in the buildings got sick, they would just brick them in there. Oh, in the tenement buildings, yeah. Sure. And they would even do it if you were just suspected of carrying the plague. In some areas, they bricked up homes and left people to die. Victims included people infected with the plague and others who were just maybe stopped by for a social visit. Oh, wow. And happened to be there at the, at the wrong time. 
Mary King's Close was a very unlucky street during the Great Plague. Uh, the Close ran right next to the Cesspit Lake, down in that area that we talked about. Mm. And during the outbreak, at least 300 people were bricked up in their homes and abandoned to die right on that street. Whoa. Now, today, that street, Close, is underground. It was partially demolished and buried when the Royal Exchange was built in the 18th century. But you can still visit Mary King's Close to see Edinburgh's hidden history. Uh, but for centuries, the rumors have claimed that the Close is haunted by the victims of the plague. That's the underground city. And Burke and Hare, when they were killing people, mm -hmm. when they were body snatchers, they often hid the bodies in oh. there. So it's... It's got a dark history for Absolutely. sure. Absolutely, Very horrible. It was horrible. But it's much better now. Thank you. The history of the shit. Uh, I almost said the history of the shitty. <laughs> the history of the city. Uh, the makes, shitty city. The shitty city. Makes me appreciate really um, modern plumbing. Oh, for sure. And today it smells uh, much fresher than it did then. Um, you were there. You can attest to that. It probably just smells like any other big city. It sure does. But back then, not so much. Oscar Wilde said of Edinburgh, quote, It is quite lovely, bits of it. <laughs> How old were you when you were there? You were just a kid, right? I was, yeah, maybe like 12 or 13. What do you remember from from Edinburgh? Opal fruits. What are opal fruits? They're starbursts, but they call them opal fruits. <laughs> and um, we went to Edinburgh Theater and we saw Phantom of the Opera and Ooh. it was amazing. Ooh. And I ate a ton of opal fruits. <laughs> and um, we took a ferry to Ireland and I uh, ate a pound of chocolate covered espresso beans and uh, may have temporarily lost my mind. <laughs> We saw a lot of castles. There were lots of signs to stay off the grass, and I think every single one of us has a photo of us standing on the grass next to signs that say "Stay off the grass." Oh, because, you ugly you know, American! We're a holes. Yeah. Um, did you stay away from the honor bar though? Oh, I sure did, Smart. and the blood pudding. And now that thing in the middle. I love reading vintage science fiction. I love the idea of how, like, say, in 1930, they envisioned how the world would be in 2020 or 2030. And that got me thinking about some of the scientific predictions that were made in legitimate science journals that are just hilarious when you look at them now. Oh, like when... Um Futuristic movies from the past, say, yes. you know, show flying cars right. in 1998, et cetera, et cetera. Exactly, yes. exactly. I'm into it. Number five. In 1905, popular mechanics predicted that the electric handshake would allow a physician to, to examine a patient in another city. Oh. Um, it did not come to pass, of course. And I'm wondering if that was for, like... A rectal exam. I was going to say the electric handshake sounds like it would be used for something very different. Sounds like a euphemism. Mm -hmm. I'll give you the electric handshake. Number four, 1961 Popular Mechanics magazine uh, estimated that the new Hiller Hornet would be a personal vehicle. It's really a tiny helicopter that <laughs> people would just have in the garages. I want one. Mm. Number three, Popular Mechanics, 1949. Quote, when a calculator like the ENIAC today is equipped with 18,000 vacuum tubes and weighs 30 tons, computers in the future may have only 1,000 vacuum tubes and weigh only 1.5 tons. I mean, they're... They're on the right... They're on the right track. Right track. 
Number two, in 1949, experts predicted that women will be more than six feet tall, wear a size 11 shoe, and have shoulders like a wrestler and muscles <laughs> like a truck driver by the year 2000. Yeah, some of us do. According to this illustration, we also dress like Xena warrior princess. <laughs> yes, please. And number one, John Elfrith Watkins, an American civil engineer, made several predictions in the year 1900 about what life would be like in the year 2000. Like, there will be no C, X, or Q in our everyday alphabet. They will have been abandoned because unnecessary. Interesting thought, sir. I mean, why those three letters, though? That doesn't make any sense. I get sense. Q and X, maybe, but Aww. C? Maybe because you can make the sounds that C makes with other letters? Yeah, that makes sense. The Box of Oddities with Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth. This message is sponsored by Greenlight. You know, as your kids get older, there are some things about parenting that gets easier. I remember once hearing my sister tell my little niece, if you put your pants on, I'll give you some Fresca. And when kids can start to reason that they get something if they do something right, it's a lot easier to manage them. Having that conversation about money with your kids, that's not the easiest thing in the world. Fact is, kids won't really know how to manage their money until they're actually in charge of it. And that's where Greenlight can help. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made just for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on the kids' spending and savings, while kids and teens build money confidence and lifelong financial literacy skills. Your kids will learn how to save, invest, and spend wisely thanks to the games that teach kids skills in a fun, accessible way. When I was a kid, I had expected chores, and then I had bonus chores. And bonus chores were where I earned money. And so if you're thinking like, hey, my kids should be doing stuff around the house. Yeah, no, you're not wrong. But maybe there's extra ways that they can learn how to be a successful financial money person. What was one of the bonus chores that you had to do? <sighs> Rub my mom's feet. And what did that pay? I don't know, like a quarter or something. Millions of parenting kids are learning about money on Greenlight. It's the easy, convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and families to navigate their life together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free when you go to greenlight.com slash oddities. That's greenlight.com slash oddities to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash oddities. I've got to tell you, the longer we've had our aura frame, the more I love it. I have kids, and they live about 3,000 miles away, and my daughter is expecting a child, and she has been sending me updates on her baby bump through the aura frame. And since I can't be there to experience it with her, it's the next best thing. And speaking of mothers, if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate your mom in your life... Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames. It allows you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and super easy to share photos with the Aura app. And here's the thing, if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. We love Aura Frames and living so far away from family, thanks to Aura, it's the next best thing. It's like, it's like almost being there. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Box of Oddities freaks can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off, plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's 
A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code oddities at checkout to save. That's A-U-R-A frames.com and use code oddities at checkout. And you will save. Thanks, Aura Frames, for bringing my family a little bit closer. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. The Box of Oddities. Celebrity voice impersonated. I found this on our freak group page on Facebook. Jennifer wrote, have I ever told you the story about the Christmas Eve I totaled my car on black ice? I called home, but my parents were out at a Christmas Eve party and my little sister declined the collect call. (laughs) Wow, that was a while ago. Santa picked me up in a white minivan filled with presents. So many that in order for me to get in, I had to put presents on my lap. First of all, you got in a white van? (laughs) He called the police and the fire department and drove me to my apartment all the while making sure I was okay. Then he left. I was so freaked out that it didn't occur to me that I hitchhiked with a stranger in a white (laughs) van, I might add. um, And bad things could have happened. I'm not making this up. Santa saved my ass. Which sounds like a Jason Aldean song, actually. It really does. P.S. It was only the second time the car broke down and I hitched a ride with a complete stranger. Don't do that again. Everyone in a van will kill you. We've discussed this. What you got for me? What, what you, what, what you, what you got for me? What, 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 what you got for me? Okay. Um, uh, first of all, I want to give you a heads up. There are parts of this that are rough, and uh, it's going to be a little uh, tough for some people to listen to, um, and you may not want to. And so, just so you're basically you're telling people to turn the podcast off. I'm just saying that there will be some some stuff that's a little hard to listen to. All right. Once we start getting into it, you'll you'll okay. be able to figure out why. All right. So in June 1941. Nazi Germany seized neighboring Lithuania. The Nazis and their Lithuanian auxiliaries moved into the city of Vilnius. Vilnius was one of the largest Jewish centers in Europe. Its Jewish influence uh, led it to being described as the Jerusalem of Lithuania. And Napoleon named it the Jerusalem of the North as he was passing through in 1812. Hmm. Over the course of three years, from July 1941 to August 1944, near the rail station at Ponari, which is a suburb of today's Vilnius, the Nazis seized thousands of Jews and took them five miles outside the city to a pit excavated in the Ponar forest. 
yeah, you're right. I don't like this at all. It's not getting, it's going to get worse. So there, some were stripped nude and shot at close range. Estimates vary, but according to the New York Times, approximately 150 Lithuanian collaborators killed the prisoners, usually in groups of 10. The Ponar massacre continued for uh, three years and took the lives of approximately 100,000 people. Oh, my God. Um, According to Monica Tomkowitz, author of a 2008 book, uh, 80,000 people were killed, including 72,000 Jews, 5,000 Soviet prisoners, uh, between 1,500 and 2,000 Poles, 1,000 people described as communists or Soviet activists, and about 40 Romani people. As the Soviet Red Army closed in on Lithuania in 1943, the Nazis and their sympathizers wanted to make sure that their crimes were not discovered. So they started to uh, cover up the things that had been going on in the area. And some things, you know, were a pretty big undertaking, including dealing with these mass burial pits. 80 inmates from the Stuhlhof concentration camp were formed into the Leichenkommando, or corpse units. Okay, this is weird because I I think I know this story, mm-hmm. and there's a documentary on it that uh, I recently came across on Netflix. And by recently, I mean this afternoon. That's, what? Yeah. This no. After- yes. Yeah. What? Yeah. All right. Well, we'll see if it's the same thing because I'm. Does it have to do with tunneling? Shut up. This is weird. This is fucking weird. Go ahead. Okay. So a man named Mordecai Zeidel was interviewed about his experience being a part of that unit. And he said at first they were they were pulled together. They were told to gather wood and then they were taken to the pits in the forest. The workers were forced to dig up the bodies that had been buried in these mass graves, um, then pile them on the wood that they had gathered and burn them. Oh, man. Um, They had uh, pokers like um, you would see lumber workers have that they would use to grab the bodies, Mm. pull them up. And then drag them over to these mass uh, forest crematoriums. The ashes were then taken out. They were ground up, mixed in with sand, and reburied. So this went on for months because there were thousands and thousands and thousands of bodies that had been buried. The prisoners dug up and burned these corpses. In the videos that I watched, one man talked about how very often people would come across those that they recognized and that they were Holy. Un, unearthing oh and then God. burning. Um, in one case, a man told a story of recognizing his wife and children among the dead. Another man, um, after the war, um, washed his hands obsessively because his experience there, um, he felt he constantly had blood on his hands, mm. and it was the blood of his people and his mm. family. And the prisoners, these 80, the um, commando group, uh, 
forced to do this. Um, they knew that their their end was coming too, um, and that once they were done with this job, they would be shot. So they uh, came together with a plan. They were staying. I I don't know the word to use. They were being kept in one of the pits that they had pulled these bodies out of. And at night, they would be put in the pit, and that's where they would stay the night until they were pulled out again in the morning where they would continue their their work. So for 76 nights, they, in this pit, dug a tunnel under the Nazis' feet. The tunnel went from the burial pit where they were housed about 100 feet into the forest. And they dug this tunnel using spoons and their bare hands. And they took turns um, doing the digging, doing the watching. And on the evening of April 15th, 1944, it's the, the last night of Passover, the prisoners decided that that was the night. And so they cut their shackles with a nail file that they had been able to acquire. And they squeezed through this two-foot square entrance in the, into the hand-carved tunnel. It was about five to nine feet below the forest floor, and about 40 captives crawled into this tunnel entry before it, the, the guards were aware of what was going on, yes. Now, the entry to the tunnel was two feet. Was there information on how large the tunnel was once they were inside? Because if it was two feet all the way... Oh. I don't think it got much bigger than Holy. that. Holy. Oh, my God. But um, once the guards noticed what was happening, um, they pursued the the people with, with dogs and guns. Um, only 12 prisoners made it out, and they joined a partisan unit in the forest. Only 11 actually ended up surviving to the end of the war. Wow. But those 11 escaped by way of a hand-dug tunnel. So they told their stories to their children, and their children passed down these stories of this amazing escape by their families. Um, but the children never knew for certain if the tunnel actually existed, because obviously by the time things you know came about, that tunnel was long gone. Uh, until 2016, the Israeli Antiquities Authority announced that a team of archaeologists and mapmakers from the United States, Canada, Israel, and Lithuania confirmed the existence of the hand-dug tunnel. That's amazing. Especially considering they had to do it under the very watchful eye. And after a day of digging up and burning and crushing and burying corpses. Yeah. So, um, in 2004, a, a previous field study had located that, that tunnel's opening. Um, but teams could not engage in traditional digging at Ponar because it would risk disturbing the burial site of 100,000 people. Sure, it sure. wasn't something that they were willing to do. So, they employed modern, non-invasive tools such as ground-penetrating radar and electrical resistivity tomography don't know that i said that right that's what geologists basically use scanning for mineral and oil deposits um, and they used it finally uh, to discover the existence of this tunnel from entrance to exit and how long was this tunnel again about 100 feet and they did it with spoons yeah and their bare hands 
So the researchers uh, during this time also believe that they located a uh, previously unknown burial pit containing the ashes of as many as 10,000 victims. And that was according to the New York Times. So that would have been the 12th burial pit identified in Ponar. So that documentary film, uh, the co-director of the film, her name is Paula Apsell. She said that after the archaeologists found the tunnel, um, the documentary team brought together all the children of the survivors that they could. And uh, many of them lived in Israel. And they explained the technology to them. They explained how they were very careful in this process and how they used these different tools to map out where the the tunnel might have started and ended. And they showed them the proof. You could just see the relief and the closure it brought Ooh, them. Wow. Said Apsel. They had their parents' stories, and of course they believed their parents' stories, but they needed that closure. And now they actually have concrete scientific evidence that these stories are true. Uh, Dr. John Seligman of the Israel Antiquities Authority, whose family originated in Lithuania, um, said the exposure of the tunnel enables us to present not only the horrors of the Holocaust, but also this undying yearning for life. And he called it a heartwarming witness to the victory of hope over desperation. What a heroic group of people. It's unbelievable. I mean, you have to know that, yes, you're you're probably going to be murdered at the end of this job. Um, and so I guess risking being murdered in the meantime is worth it because at least there's a hope of an out um, mm-hmm. yeah. rather than just waiting to be killed. Yeah. And uh, the like you said, after a day of doing this incredibly mind-numbingly horrendous activity to go to work at, in digging a tunnel with spoons in your bare hands and um, all the while keeping it a secret from, you know, guards who, it's just, I can't, I can't, yeah. I can't. Why do we do this to each other as the human race? Why do we do these horrible things to each other? I just... I don't even know what to say about that. I know. It's an incredible story. And I I found it, and I was reading it, and it didn't, I mean, it's not, it's in, I debated on whether or not it was an oddity. But I think that the the moment that the documentary maker started talking about the families uh, experiencing that uh, that closure that comes with having heard their their the stories of their parents and their parents' parents in some cases and and seeing how that actually might have taken place mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and being able to walk that space and yeah. be in that space and know what they were able to do. I mean, in some cases, those people would not have been alive had they not had those prisoners not dug that tunnel with those spoons. That's an amazing way to look at it. Wow. Like I said, it, that was a rough one. Yeah, and but it uh, it's fascinating, and it's really a tribute to the human spirit when people that are subjected to these hellish conditions can find within themselves the strength to try to break out and break away and take action to do it. 
And even though only a handful of them made it out, like you said, there are now people in this world that would not have existed if, if they hadn't, you know, got down there with their spoons and started digging. Yep. Incredible. It's going to be hard for me not to think of that the next time I'm having a bad day at work or... The next time you get <laughs> like, overcharged in the mini bar. Right, or yeah. I'm stuck in traffic. Sure. I'm going to be like, yeah, okay. Yeah. There's some fucking perspective for you, Katrina. <laughs> yep. You heartless bastard. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's true. And, and it's, it's, it's important we don't forget these things. As painful as they are and as uh, troubling as hearing the story can be, we have to tell these stories. Mm. We have to remember this. And now we're in the unenviable position of trying to segue into closing this episode. Oh, here. Hold on. Banjo will provide our pug snortles for this episode. Sounds like me in the morning. Thanks, Banjo. Thank you, Banjo. We look forward to seeing you freaks again next time. Until then. <laughs> Keep flying that freak flag. Fly it proudly, you beautiful freak. (laughs) And so, let it be known that the box of oddities belongs to you, and its fate is in your hands. Therefore, it's been requested by those I report to, to beseech you for assistance. The box of oddities is free. We ask but one thing of you, to provide a five-star rating and a positive review. True. That is, two things. However, tis merely a five-star rating and a positive review. Also, subscribe to us. Okay, so three things is all we ask. Three things and three things only. Henceforth, the Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. TheBoxOfOddities.com Copyright 2019. All rights reserved. Have you ever wondered how inbred the Habsburgs really were? What women in the past used for birth control? Or what Queen Victoria's nine children got up to? On the History Tea Time podcast, I profile remarkable queens and LGBTQ plus royals, explore royal family trees, and delve into women's medical history and other fascinating topics. Join me every Tuesday for History Tea Time, wherever fine podcasts are enjoyed. Hello everyone, it's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well... I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be.